Welcome to the Didi and Latal Show. Advice, thoughts, and stories from a married couple on cybersecurity, technology, and life in general. Now here are your hosts, Didi and Latal. Hello, and welcome to the Didi and Lital Show. I'm Lital. Hi, Didi. How things are going? Things are awesome because of two reasons. First, we have our guest, Reed, who is doing something that I cannot not be proud of because he's taking it to the man. He's building a small company that's competing with two giants. Now let him talk about this more, which mm-hmm. always makes me happy. The, You're like the David and Goliath yes. kind of play. Yes. And okay. second... He's a Vikings fan, as he told us in the pre-prep. And I'm so happy not to be a Vikings fan. Mac Jones <laughs> against the Eagles looked like Tom Brady compared to, to Kirk Cousins. He had only marginal picks and marginal errors and not lost the ball too many times, except for that pick six. That was a tr- horrific. Any, Reed, welcome, with, Reed. Exactly. Thanks with that, for welcome, Reed. coming on the show. Let's start with a little intro. Tell us about you and your background and what brought you here. Awesome. So as Didi mentioned, I co-founded Stitch about three and a half years ago, which is an authentication and fraud platform for developers, mostly focused in the customer identity space. So dealing with some Goliaths like Auth0, Forge Rock, obviously Auth0 being part of Okta now. And in terms of kind of what we focus on, I would say the analogy we most make is that when we were as developers trying to build authentication at past companies, we kept saying that it felt like there were PayPal for there are PayPal's for authentication, but not Stripes for authentication. When it came to like API first design. Also, we felt that there were some lacking architectures when I was thinking about kind of the next decade of authentication, where a lot of assumptions had been built around passwords as the predominant and only way to authenticate someone. Versus as you're seeing things like WebAuthn and other biometric means, email-based verification, OAuth start to take off over the last few years. So that's really where we focus a lot on developer experience, a lot on the next generation of authentication. And then the the last thing I'd probably mention is that we have probably taken a slightly different viewpoint than Auth0, where we baked a lot of fraud protection into the product. We my, kind of my, see that my, as... my batteries included model. Yes, Always the batteries included model. Exactly, exactly. Our, our viewpoint is you shouldn't have to pay six figures to an off vendor and six figures to a fraud vendor when they're effectively trying to tell you the same thing, just in different ways. The fraud vendor is trying to tell you, is this a bot versus human? The customer identity provider is trying to tell you, is this really Latal or Didi? Our viewpoint is that you should actually be doing that traffic identification along with the actual verification of methods tied to the user. That awesome. sounds very relevant to everyone in e-commerce, retail. I'm sure they're excited about that because like fraud is big and authentication is big for them. So I'm sure you're simplifying the the life for them. Yeah, I'm also very excited about some of the stuff that they're doing as they're, they're going, they were a little bit visionary. Reed and I met through, Matt went to a Greylock event and met up with Reed there and said, you know what, this conversation you should probably be having with Didi. And since then we met... And we've been hitting it off ever since. One of the things I really like is that embrace of not only selling to consumers and developers, but also understanding that you have businesses that have consumers. Like right now, if you look at a lot of the bigger companies, you'll see that understanding workforce and understanding consumer are merging together mm-hmm. into basically one person's space. You have people that they, they own identity. They own the identity for the people that go to the company's website, like let's pick Peloton, my favorite 
company to pick on, but you ha- need to deal with authenticating Peloton employees and you need to deal with Peloton customers. Yeah. And by the way, I think they use Okta for both. Uh, and probably they'll enjoy that merging of a single view that can support both because they're probably all, all, uh, off zeroing in, in one place, Okta in another place, not having a single database, not actually merging things and suffering. And I have Reed, and I'm talking over Reed's part because I would love to have him talk about that. So, but before this, I'll, I'd love to start with, uh, tell us a little bit of your history of how did you get, basically, how did you get here? Yeah, definitely. So I first got into tech about six and a half years ago. Prior to that, I was a management consultant at Bain. So I was doing some pretty boring Excel work and uh, company op- operas, operations and optimization. For that, I was getting a little bit kind of, I, I, I felt it was kind of boring to go in and rip out like 20% of OPEX for a company versus starting a new product line or doing something a little bit more growth oriented. So that was really what I was looking for when I got into tech. Um, and then, so six and a half years ago, coming out of Bain, I joined Plaid, which is a fintech API company. Um, most people know the company, but if you don't, you probably still use it. If you've ever connected your bank account to Venmo, Robinhood, Personal Capital, any of these fintech applications, Plaid has something like a 90% market share. So it's likely that you're using them in order to connect your bank account. And from our experience, uh, my co-founder, Juliana, who is an engineer at Plaid, we actually met the first day at Plaid. Obviously, we became co-founders three years later. During our time together at Plaid, we were both working together on the authentication team. So when you went to actually go connect to that bank account, we were we owned both the UX and conversion elements of authentication. So does somebody find the right first community bank in Tuscaloosa versus, versus first community bank in Seattle? Do they go through the right authentication flow? Does the 2FA work? Does the SMS get delivered? Things like that. But then we also dealt with kind of the more sinister side of authentication, which was people actively trying to break into Plaid. Most commonly, the issues that we dealt with there were bots pretending to be humans when they were trying to credential stuff or account takeover. We were a particularly susceptible target or, I guess, valuable target because of the fact that we were one API for 10,000 banks. So the instance that you would have a large data breach at Target or Best Buy or Home Depot, you'd have millions of usernames and passwords on the web. And people would say, I'd love to know what percentage of these were used at Wells Fargo, Chase, Bank of America. Look, there's an API for that. And so a lot of what we did there was around kind of human verification in a passive way to make sure that when somebody was making a request in order to go through that authentication flow, that it was, we trusted that it was human and not headless browsing or bot or script or anything like that. And then, so we started Stitch about three, almost three and a half years ago. And that was really coming out of when we were working on that team and authentication, we actually started wanting to modify authentication a bit because we noticed that biggest issue on the fraud side, the password as kind of a, a shared chain of liability and risk across different applications was also our biggest side, uh, biggest problem on the conversion and growth side because about 45% of our funnel was falling out because they forgot their password. And for us, every percentage point of conversion was millions of ARR because we only got paid when you successfully connected that bank account to that or Coinbase or Robinhood. And so we kind of tied that together. We used to see this as like two different teams. And Juliana had been on the fraud team. I had been the PM for both of these teams. We ended up conjoining them and saying, okay, let's actually start to think about this in the same spirit, which is what are the authentication methods that are both better for customer experience, like biometrics, maybe you're used to it from a face ID or email magic link or phone verification, but also make it much harder for somebody to do large scale credentials 
stuffing, account takeover. And so as, that was actually what kind of spawned Stitch was as we started trying to do that in-house, the only reason we started building it in-house at Plaid was we could not get what we wanted out of all zero and Okta. We found that they were very widget-based in their approach and also had not thought very much about the next generation of authentication methods. So we were running into a lot of issues with them. Ended up building it in-house. As most people listening to this podcast that have decided to go in-house route, you end up kicking yourself a quarter later because you've done two times as much work, but gotten half as much value, maybe even less yep. than that. Couldn't move as quickly as we wanted to to add new methods, A-B test them, et cetera. But kind of the last thing I'll note is that when we finally did get an A-B test out, what we found was conversion went up about 50% on mobile, 25% on desktop. And our fraud rate went to about zero with the cohort that we were testing with, which was super exciting. I think the thing that we got really excited about, though, as founders was it shouldn't be this hard for everyone to build this. Not everyone has a 15-person team that they want to dedicate just towards this. And so that was really the the inspiration for Stitch a few years ago. And I, and I think one of the evolutions that I would mention is it's been interesting as we started selling to enterprises, like a lot of what we just talked about resonates with a lot of people, but a lot of enterprises still want there's still a hesitance to go away from legacy methods, right? If you have passwords, you know that your users are familiar with them. And so you don't have to re-educate them on how they work. And of course they want security. But one of the things that's been interesting is for us to find the right way to be that bridge towards this future so that people can get the better options, but also offering the option set to people that are not quite ready to revamp or completely revamp their own system, but just want to augment it with other options. So that's been kind of a journey for us from thinking that maybe Three years ago, when we started, we thought maybe we'll never have to offer passwords. About a year into the company, we were like, oh, we definitely need to offer a password because every enterprise is asking for it. But I think our, our belief really is that by the end of the decade, you will very rarely ever be using passwords, maybe for a couple root accounts, but I think unlikely in a patient scenario. That's interesting. That's very ambitious. In terms of what do you do in an enterprise when somebody says, I don't actually want you to be my primary. I want you to be the secondary. I'm guessing that a lot of your customers are also saying, can we just do the sign in with Google thing? What's the value What's the value for you in the consumer space when somebody says, I just want to have the sign in with Google? Or why would somebody not do the sign in with Google? And by the way, I'm not just saying sign in with Google, assume Facebook and assume everything LinkedIn, else. LinkedIn, all yes. the other. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so it's a great, great point, great question. I think like I'll be very honest with people. If they literally just need one thing, sign with Google, yeah, you, you'll get value from us. We'll probably save a few weeks. You won't have to QA it, things like that. But I mean, maybe you should just build that in-house if it's just <laughs> OAuth. Obviously, if they're worried about their team's security ability to make sure that, that they're not exposing any OAuth vulnerabilities or anything like that, obviously you want to offload that. But I think really where all vendors become much more valuable is in the the fact that most people on average are offering three plus options and then they're doing all the session management under the then they also have these other elements user management or maybe then you also need bot protection and i really think it's the menu of options that gets kind of gelled together and the fact that you can both get all of it in a unified manner but also pick and choose what works for you and so i think actually if somebody does just want one singular thing i think they should have the real debate internally of build versus buy because sometimes it does make sense to build if there's if there's not multiple options that they need. I think, though, probably that depends on the option. Like, I think one example of where people probably use us alongside an in-house system is SAML. If people are building enterprise SSO, so it's continue with Google, but right, there's Google in the consumer sense of unlogging in for my personal Gmail. Then there's Google in the SAML or OIDC sense of I'm logging in from my Stitch uses Google Workplace. 
and I'm provisioning them to this SaaS app like Stripe or DocuSign or something like that, that's actually an area where you're stepping on a minefield that is much more dangerous if you get wrong than the consumer one. It's also much more complex because you're dealing with like XML parsing and like the legacy SAML protocol elements. And so those are areas where I would say, unless you have 100% confidence in your security team, you should offload to some vendor, whether it's Stitch or another. But And so I think it, it depends a little bit on which feature, if it's just one feature they need, but some are certainly more footprint prone than others. Yep. And, and, and as you mentioned, oh, sorry. No, you go. I'll ask As you mentioned, you're, you're, taking out, you're taking on some big customers, uh, some big companies like Auth0 through Okta and Okta itself, because they also had a Siam situation and probably Microsoft and a few others. Who would be the, the, the companies that would go with you guys and or y'all? And kind of where, where do you see challenges? Where do you see growth opportunities? What, do you, what yeah. advice, by the way, for somebody taking on some of these guys? Yeah, so we probably see, we've had to like get very familiar with how you sell against this motion because we probably see Auth0 in 80% of our deals or our sale flood deals. Um, our product led uh, signups are a little bit different because you get a lot of like YC startups and ones like that that just want to use the, the newest technology. But on the sales led side, um, we see them in the majority of deals. And I would say where we've had the most success has been on both Auth0 migrations and in-house migrations, which is interesting, but it, Actually, a lot of the initial value, that's not always the, the 100% reason why somebody chooses us, but it's the initial thing that leads them to explore Stitch is the same actually for Auth0 customers that are frustrated and in-house customers that want to migrate off a current system. And it's what I was talking about earlier, where I do think the analogy, even though Stripe for X is overused, I think the analogy makes a little bit more sense how we talk about it, which is we're trying to make the distinction of a PayPal approach to payments, which is very widget based, like you redirect towards a widget, handles the payments versus Stripe, which was API first and allowed you to own much more of the payments UX because a lot of people wanted to optimize that. Auth0 is the same as PayPal, in, in my opinion, in terms of how they built their universal login product, which kind of forces you into like redirected to my domain.auth0.com. It's kind of a black box. You have to write rules and hooks and things like that in their dashboard. So you lose a lot of the control over the application layer. And so one of the reasons a lot of Auth0 customers migrate to us, and it's a same reason a lot of in-house customers say we're a better fit than other vendors, is that you can actually build Auth the way that you want to. You can build your vision for your application versus being tied into this strongly opinionated but quite limiting black box. And that resonates both with people that are trying to get off of Auth0 and get towards that future. But also people from in-house, it's just pretty impossible for them to, not impossible, but it's quite difficult for them to migrate to Auth0 because you have to change so many assumptions of how your internal systems work typically in order to offload that to them. So that's what, that's what I'd say, like for us is usually the first aha moment. It's not the thing that gets you then to sign the agreement. It gets you to evaluate Stitch as like, oh, this is a different approach to Auth. This would allow us to do a lot more things that our product team's been asking for that we need to update this. We want, we want to own things more from the application side versus the off your dashboard side. So you, you, that's kind of how you get into the conversation where I've said it become, where I've seen it become much more fruitful on actually beating the glide has typically been in what is a way that we can get to think a little bit differently about what your auth provider should give you and convince you that auth zero is really just like half of the equation and is lacking this other piece. And for us, that's been broad and risk has been the major driver there. 
I mentioned this because it was kind of the concentric circles of both what we thought should be in the identity market and also where I thought we had a unique uh, viewpoint from Plaid, where from Plaid, I mentioned that we were defending against a lot of bot attacks. One of the things I didn't mention that's not like super well known, though it's not it's not any secret these days, is that Plaid, the way that Plaid makes connections to banks historically, now, they, now they're old and mature and they have bank agreements. But historically, we were reverse engineering mobile apps and websites. So we understood how to beat every fraud vendor because we understood how to lie about our traffic and deceive. And the reason I mentioned that is effectively that for us, fraud and risk was a really important kind of adjacent, but very narrative, like similar market to identity, where when you come in as an Osiro customer or an in-house customer as an enterprise, we can convince you, why would you go with them when they only have half the feature set and you're going to have to add, either build this out in-house or go with another vendor versus you can consolidate to us. And it's different, but maybe a little bit similar to how Datadog thought, thought about full stack observability. This kind of, we sometimes talk about full stack identity and how do you give people that full end-to-end picture. And so that's been a bigger part of, I think, the when somebody's in the sales funnel, convincing them that we're the right choice because it's not just future looking and like, more observant about all of your needs, but it also actually makes sense to your CFO that I can consolidate two vendors into one, or I know that we won't have to go buy the second vendor for fraud because we'll have it built in Stitch. I'm very curious about this point from a go-to-market motion, being in marketing. Is it more challenging that now you need to have a conversation with both the people in fraud or the people that care about fraud? versus the people that care about identity, security, IT, authentication. And so is it more of a challenge or do you see it as, oh, it's great because I have more buyers in the enterprise buying process that I can kind of offer something to. It's always kind of like, should you focus more when you're kind of like doing your selling motion or is it great that you have a bunch of uh, personas to talk to in an enterprise? I'm just curious how it goes. It's it's a bit of, I've actually experienced both in different parts of the sale. So I would actually say it's more complex when we think about product marketing, because we're like, oh, there's two different personas that right. might be the core developer stakeholder. And then there's also the head of risk and head of security. And to be honest, I don't think we fully figured that out on the like, how do you make sure your homepage can talk to, how do you make sure that you're, you're like, because really everything we do is very oriented towards the developer on our docs, homepage, et cetera. So I'd say it's a little bit harder and more complex there and still like a journey for us to figure out. But once someone's in sale, it's actually been amazing. And it's actually probably greases the wheels most in terms of evaluation. Because one thing I didn't mention that's actually been a huge positive is an off migration is typically like a month long, two months long, depends on kind of the complexity that you're dealing with. And it's a big decision, right? You're deciding to change how something very fundamental and core works. The fraud product, our, our leading fraud product that people buy is called device fingerprinting. And it's about five minutes to drop the snippet on your front end. And then we can give you a full report of all of the like bot traffic, headless browsing, if, how many of your users have malware on their device, things like that. And we and what I've noticed is a lot of these enterprises will actually, once they uncover that during the sales process, will install that while they're planning their migration. Because to them, usually one of the reasons they're migrating especially if they're coming from in-house, is usually they've had a breach recently. And so their team is very motivated. So they'll put that there. We'll start helping them on the fraud stuff. It's also, there's no migration required. There's not really much solutions engineering that's required. And in parallel, we're working on the off stuff in the background. So I, I guess what I would say is top of funnel, it's harder because you have to figure out how to treat the two different personas. 
in funnel, it's actually been easier for us because of the way it accelerates deals. That's beautiful. I love it. I want to ask both of you a little bit of a futuristic question. So let's say there is a company now that want to come with a completely new product in consumer or, or they're in banking, personal banking. If they want to completely start from scratch and build a secured, fraud-resistant product, we all know that the number one attack vectors is your users, right? Authentication is, is the, the, the most prevalent weak point of an organization. What, if you help them design it, what would you put in place? I'll let Reed start the, answering that because I, 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 you're challenging something that I actually never want to do. And Reed is braver than I am. I, <laughs> I, I, I always like to be on the side, the advisor thing. So if you look at a lot of the systems like Datadog, like Ort, like a lot of the SIM systems, they were always on the side. And I've always been on the side to build something that was never in line. The last product that I built was in, in line was adaptive authentication. And I, I lost years of my life because of that. Because every time you're, you even have a minor hiccup, the somebody in Capital One calls and yells at, they don't even yell at me. They yell at Art Coviello or even at, at Tucci. And, he's, and by the time it gets to me, it's already like a landslide of disaster. So I, I, I will... So you don't want to build a resistant, secured system? No, no, no. I want to buy whatever Reed builds. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I appreciate that that setup there. That actually is perfect. And it's a good question because I actually am quite opinionated about this. And I'll advise a lot of customers on like by vertical, what I'd recommend, because it typically is different by vertical to be optimizing for. What I would do if I were building a fintech app today is I would probably give three options for primary authentication. I would give an email verification option, like a one-time passcode. I would give an OAuth option. Not a lot of fintechs like to do this because they don't like to mix your Google accounts, your Apple accounts, and your fintech accounts. But I've seen the few that have done it see conversion that's like 30% higher because most users don't want to create a new account. And one-click Google's really good. I would, I would advise one of those. And then I would say, this is not going to capture all of your users right now, but in your email input box, when somebody enters their email, you should actually give them the option between a passkey enrollment, which allows them to do a cross-device biometric enrollment with Apple Cloud or Google Drive, or to send that like one-time passcode or magic link to their email. I think passkeys are going to get a huge amount of adoption over the next few years, given some of the tweaks and issues with the UX of WebAuthn, which is the, the core biometrics protocol built on that it had a few years ago when it got released. And so effectively, you end up having this login form that's like email. Somebody can enter their email. They can either do biometric or they can request an email verification, or they can do something like something with Google or something with Apple. And then what I would do is, one, is one thing I'll note there is effectively with Google and Apple, because they're starting to roll out required 2FA, you're actually getting two factors in one, authentication when somebody goes through that. You should still have your own 2FA model so that you can 100% ensure it because Apple and Google are, Google are not at 100% rollout coverage yet, but they were quite close in the high 90s, I believe was my last stat that I saw. But then I would still uh, recommend having 2FA so that you can do step-up 2FA on certain transactions like money movement. Mm -hmm. And there, what I would love to say is only ever do biometrics, but there is like a meet your user where they are, where I would say you should make biometrics like the primary enrollment. But the reason people are still offering, offering Google Authenticator and SMS is that 
even for the phishing risk with Google Authenticator and with SMS, the SIM swap risk and the phishing risk, it's much better to get enrollment at all in one of those and increase the game theoretical risk or cost of attacking somebody's accounts than it is to say that you want to be perfect and only 70% of your users actually enroll. Actually, if you only offer biometrics, probably more like 30% of your users would enroll into a fit. So that's probably a longer answer than you wanted, but I would probably diagram it out like the primary 2FA. And then there's some other like details I would, I would add, but probably not core to it. No, it's perfect because it's like hybrid solution, right? Of getting a lot of things together. It's a little bit like Swiss cheese. And, and I like the fact that you don't think about it as like 100%, but yeah, 90% of people already have uh, 2FA through Google, which I'm shocked. Amazing. But by itself, like that's a big achievement that already have. You so always need to ask yourself, what is the second factor? If the second factor is SMS, then it's a very low bar. Yeah. But as you say, I mean, I guess it's all a percentage of the risk yeah. and as much as you reduce it. So, yeah, I, I like the fact that it's not going to be a complete silver bullet, but it's basically a few things together that makes it better. And I'm sure more technology will come and improve it. So that's super interesting. Yep. The other thing that I found to be very interesting, Reed, the way you're communicating this, you, I think you and I are, are basically very data-driven and we take it for granted that Reed is talking about, oh, there's X amount of adoption. This is, this is how we see the market break, being break, broken down. I don't know if it's uh, grateful to your Bain background or anything else. I'm sure it is. But I really love the data-driven approach. Uh, how much does that kind of serve your decision-making process in building a startup? Uh, I, I hope you're going to say 100% because I, I, we've been drilling this into our teams for years of don't, don't tell me an opinion, give me data. Yep, no, 100%. I think it probably is partially that, that Bain background and the frameworks there, but I would say we view building a startup as much more science than a vision. Like, yes, you have a vision, but like I think Paul, Paul Graham had a quote on this the other day where you're, you are, you have to let the data take your vision where it should go. Like if you're just staunch the vision that you had three and a half years earlier without the right data to make decisions on that, you're always going to end up in issues. So yeah, we're 100% data-driven. Occasionally, they've just got our instinct, but try to be as data-driven as possible. I, I, I think that probably should be the name of the episode. Building a startup is more science than gut or something along these lines. I'll, I'll probably reach out to you for a better quote because I, I think, I think, I'd love that as a, as a name for the, for the episode. Um, Good. Should yeah. we move to our little game? Yes, we should. Yes, we Thank should. Uh, although I would, before we do this, I, I do want to get to let Reed kind of tell us, where are you guys in the overall voyage of startup land? Yeah. Where you guys are, what are your goals? How can we help you achieve them? If, and if, if somebody if, is interested in reaching out, where they can find you. Yes. Yes. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, we're started about three and a half years ago. We're a Series B company, have raised uh, 120 million at this point from investors like Benchmark, Index, Code2, Thrive. We, what's been really great was, so we launched our product publicly about two and a half years ago, saw a really large kind of bottoms up product-led adoption from developers. Then we started seeing SMBs and mid-markets coming on board. Over the last year, I'd say has been like pretty amazing for us on an upmarket journey and enterprises. That's where I'd say a lot of my focus is today, since kind of the, the self-serve bottoms up kind of fuels itself organically. The enterprise upmarket is where you need to think about kind of 
how you pitch yourself, how you position yourself, getting in front of people at events, conferences. That's Didi and I ran into each other at a conference. So I think for us, the there's probably two big things. One is that over the last few years, our product line expanded from, we built B2C authentication, then B2B authentication, and then also fraud risk. So we kind of have three different product lines and you can mix and match the fraud risk with the other two. But so I think for us, it's been kind of like continuing to go even into greater depth with each of those product lines. But then also on the upmarket and kind of like enterprise journey, we've been starting to sell to much, much larger kind of like logos, companies, experiences. And that's really what I, when I talk about like the Stripe for authentication, we do think we're pretty uniquely built to serve the largest of enterprises and the most kind of unique bespoke demands, requests, requirements that they have. So for us, that's really been the focus. I'd love if people have any questions for them to reach out. We're at stitch.com. That's S-T-Y-T-C-H. I've noticed our Google Trends history, people, it's much more popular to misspell Stitch, S-T-Y-C-H, without the two Ts. So it has the two Ts. It's just replacing that with the Y. And then if people want to follow me on Twitter, I am Mick Stemple, which is just the conjoined nature of my last name. Awesome. I think we'll, we're at game time. Game time. Yes. And now Lital and Didi present Prove You're Not a Robot. Three final authenticating questions for our guest. So, Reed, if you were a cybersecurity superhero, what would be your name? Who would play you in the Hollywood movie to follow? Yeah, so I'm going to stay on the theme of thought protection. And so I would say that my name would be nobots.txt as a <laughs> kind of a, a play on words of robots.txt. And I've been told... So I get a couple doppelgangers. I get Littlefinger from Game of Thrones and I get Edward Norton occasionally. I prefer the Edward Norton one. So I'm going to say Edward Norton. Would, would be... Sorry, uh, yeah. Um, he's my favorite actor yes. in the world. But I, so, think, you're, I yes. think you're like a foot taller than him, though. Might be the case. Yeah. And then I don't, I'd have to ask uh, my co-founder, Juliana. I think I'll actually have to ask her so I can fill out the rest of that superhero roster because it's certainly a tag team. Uh, definitely put it on the LinkedIn post. That will be awesome. So we've been talking about future of passwords and you've given us a hint about that, but do kind of give us your thoughts about the future of passwords. I'll give you kind of like two elements here. I have 100% confidence and this is going to get confusing because I'm going to use a lot of percentages. I have 100% confidence that like 99% plus of our password use will be gone by the end of the decade. And then I would say I'm about 50% confidence that we can get to zero passwords overall. Like, it, And let me kind of explain what that means because that's a lot of numbers. Okay, so I'm very confident that the vast majority of applications that we use will not have to use passwords in the next five to seven years. The reason for that is, is that I do think passkeys are kind of like the biggest breakthrough when it comes to the combination of UX and security, where you can actually start to use cross-device biometrics. And the same way that we log into our devices with Touch ID and Face ID can become ubiquitous. And it will be a win both for businesses on the security side and conversion side, but also for consumers on the ease of use and not having to go reset passwords all the time, deal with that. And so I do think that that is going to get massive widespread adoption that's been something that we've invested a lot in on, on the passkey side and all the, also the ergonomics around it. What I will say is even in that world, you're still going to have to have account recovery. So people are still going to have, have to have things like backup methods, contact methods that you can stitch together effectively in order for you to say, 
I'm fairly confident, even if you've lost all your devices, this is still DD. I want to give you either a temporary step in or the limited session access before you prove something. And so that's still going to be a case. And that kind of brings me to the second part of the question, which is like, okay, so right now, when I, when I think about password lists, I differ between the application layer and the root layer. And when I talk about the root layer, what I mean is like, what is the backbone of the passwordless experiences? And if you think about continue with Google today, it is a passwordless experience on a hundred of the sites that you use it on. But when you go to gmail.com, it is a root account that still has password. gmail.com. I have my password. I have all my 2FA. So the root account still has that password. Google last year did start to let you enroll, or sorry, it was earlier this year, started to let you enroll in pass keys, but they've not yet dropped the password. And so that is the question I have for like the core root accounts, like Apple, Google, others, is when are they actually going to get conviction that they can 100% drop the password from users' experiences with iCloud and Gmail? It seems like that's where they want to get. The reason I'm more 50-50 on that is that I actually haven't seen the strong like route or path that they've proposed for how they're going to manage account recovery and account yeah. access as the root account if you don't have a something verification factor as part of the string of things that they want together. So yeah, right. probably the more numbers and detail than you wanted, but that's not No, no, no. This is perfect because you addressed something that, that we addressed multiple times on the podcast, which is that how do you protect the, the account recovery? Uh, I, I have a buddy named Sidhu who eventually will pull on the, on the podcast. He loves to lose his YubiKey plugged into his Mac with his with his phone as a bundle to make sure that the the hack and usually with the wallet. IT so loves it. IT loves it. He basically is like hacker's paradise. He forgets that in one bag in an Uber like once every couple of months. So how do you recover that? That 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 remains like the the key problem of how how do you recover that? And last question. Everybody talks about AI. Give us one thought of something that's really bad about AI and something that's really really good about AI. Yeah, so I'm actually, if anyone's going to be at the Authenticate conference in October, the FIDO Alliance is putting it on. I'm actually giving a whole talk on AIs, but the boon, but also the risks at the application security side. Let's put a link once it's out. So everybody that wants to come to your session. Yes. And I need to make sure that I think my buddy Chris is going to be at the conference. And I think at least somebody else is going to be. I think I'm in an offsite, so I won't be. But it's... But there's at least two other people that I know that will be, and I'll send them your way. Okay. So, awesome. That's yeah. great. Yeah, so I think I'll focus first on the risks because that's the main portion of my presentation and where I've thought a lot about application security, though there is one thing I'm very excited about. I think the biggest risk boils down to, and then there's a lot of stuff that jumps out of this, is that effectively what ChatGPT and the other uh, AI models are doing is if you look at the difference between GPT-3's performance on tasks and GPT-4 and why people are losing their mind over GPT-4, the main way that I succinctly describe it is that you've effectively now commoditized above average intelligence with these open a- with these AI models. And if you look at the scoring of GPT-3 versus GPT-4, like example, like MCAT, LSAT, all these things that used to be good barometers of intelligence, debatably so, of course, you would see that GPT-3 would not have gotten into law school versus GPT-4 is now going to UCLA law. And it's it's like that for like every single like vertical niche specific function, functional area. And the reason I think that's scary is if it's obviously a huge opportunity, but the reason it's scary if you can commoditize above average intelligence is not only do the good guys have that, obviously the fraudsters have that, 
And as part of the presentation I'm doing, I just show how I built a phishing website that was mimicking Bank of America in about five minutes. I'm not actually an engineer. Like I know a little bit of code, but I'm not an engineer. But with ChatGPT, I was able to get it to spin up a deployed site that with Replit in about five minutes. That is a phishing site for ingesting username and password that looks like Bank of America. And then the other thing I was able to do was to spin up a headless browsing script that successfully allowed me to create a fake account on another site in about five minutes. And the issue that I see there is that cost of attacking something, it used to require engineering expertise, or at least you had to buy the engineering tools that are being created on the black market. And now we're finding that literally anyone can, and they're probably going to get a lot better at it as well with the addition of these tools. So that's why I'd say like, there's going to be a pretty large, and the last thing I'll add as part of that is I think Dark Trace, a cybersecurity firm, had a good stat on this, that in Q1, so this is a couple quarters old, this stat, the linguistic complexity of phishing emails was already up by 17%. And most of that was ascribed to just, if you think about fraudsters that might not typically like perfect language skills, now yep. they had a tool at their disposal that was really good and convincing and sophisticated. And so I think all of that combination that's easier to create fake sites easier to dupe people with phishing, also easier for you to credential stuff, create bot attacks, scripts, et cetera. That's the scariest thing that AI allows is now you have kind of an army of little engineers that can help you with that. And I'll pause there and then I can go to thing, but I didn't know if you were going to say something, Didi. No, I, I, I'm just loving the commoditized above average intelligence, which kind of goes to my version of the dumber uncle. Yeah, it's no longer your dumber uncle. It is my, it, 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 in our family, above a little bit above average is dumber uncle. So now I'd love to hear about the good thing because... Yeah, yeah. So for me, the thing that I think about coming from the identity space that I find actually really exciting about AI is there's a few projects that are digging into this and this is still a little bit more nascent, but it's getting better every month. The idea of autonomous AI agents and what that can mean for how users actually interact with applications and the web and what tedious things, but also risky things you can completely offload from the user in the future. So the way that AutoGPT works is effectively, instead of right now, the way that we browse the web and use the web is that we have to take very discrete actions, right? Like we need effectively a parameter that I clicked the continue button or I you know clicked, I want to take this flight from September 17th to 19th. What AutoGPT does is it uses self-prompting. So yep. instead, you can give it a general objective, which is like, book me a trip to Berlin. And it will prompt itself, what are the things I need in order to book a trip to, to Berlin? Uh, okay, now what tools do I need? Oh, I need to be able to browse the web. Let me, let me download a web driver into this software kit, and then I'm going to go to the website. Okay, now let me look for the cheapest fare. And effectively, you can kind of chain together these like, full experiences where it's no longer the end user that the user experience is serving, but you might actually have AI agents that are doing a lot of things that we don't want to do. What's exciting to me about that is just like, I think you get better outcomes when users aren't dealing with friction because most users abandon friction. If you think about how often people do the right things for like their health or their finances, like glad we saw this where like the conversion rate for somebody connecting to a personal finance, like budgeting it, was way lower than somebody buying Bitcoin because one of them gives you dopamine and the other one does not. So I really like the idea that these things like AI agents, which are, are still, as I mentioned, there's drift in them. They're about 5% wrong every time, which still compounds over the journey of like a 10-step process that it needs to take. So it's not quite there. But I think if you get to the point where we actually can have trusted AI agents that do various application tasks for us, 
our digital world is going to get way easier. And in a way, this might actually end up becoming one of the defenses to us in the future. If the AI agent is well enough trained on how to avoid risky situations, obviously the AI agent is a risk in itself where you need to make sure its permissions and access controls are locked down. But if it becomes better than your average like grandmother or my average parent at detecting phishing and things like that, I no longer need to train my parents that, no, you shouldn't have given out your password in that situation or something like that, where I think there's probably always going to be a limit in education. So as much as we can programmatically solve that, we're going to be in a much better spot over time. I can't agree more. I love this idea. I need this AI agent today. To to... fill out the kids' hockey forms. Yes, and to find me a better flight because tomorrow it's going to be a hurricane around us and I need an alternative to flying out to Tel Aviv and Delta wouldn't help me. But no, so. AI, <laughs> but no AI will ever solve my problem of going to four hockey games in one Sunday. Self-driving car. Self-driving car. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Reed. It was a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. I hope everybody learned a lot and... We're going to give links to your talk and how to reach out. Everyone, thank you so much. The Didi and Lital Show is a weekly podcast. If you like us, please rate, review, and share with your folks. If you want to be on the show, please reach out to Didi or to myself on LinkedIn. Thank you, Reed. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Thanks, Didi. Thanks, Lital. And Shana Tova. Shana Tova. Happy New Year for everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me.